calling him Oscar. It's good to see everybody today. You doing okay? So to see this many people on a rainy day, it's got to be a sign of something. Maybe nothing else, just hungry for what God's doing. Well, I'm excited to be here. I was actually scheduled not to be here, but I'm glad they, <clears throat> it was canceled and I'm here for that reason. I started last week talking about the role of New Testament priests in the, in the scripture, and I want to start out in Exodus um, 19. And the Bible talks about the, the places of uh, first mention. It's very important. It means that there's something you should take note of that will set up a precedent for what's going to happen from then on. Exodus 19 is actually the first place in Scripture that we really see the, even the word of priesthood mentioned at all. It was God's desire to, when they came out of Egypt, or when he brought them to Mount Sinai, that's what he told Moses, he said, I want these people to be a people for me. Right. It was never really God's intention for them to be set up this old priest, priesthood in the very beginning. He wanted the people to meet with him. So when they came to the mountain, they saw it catching on fire and quaking and shaking and all of that. They said, Moses, you go up and hear God for us. They didn't deny that it was God. They saw the miracles all the way through coming out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, saw the miracles in the wilderness. And so they did not deny that God was there, but it was a God that they didn't want to approach. And so Moses, you go up and hear from God. And so that began a priesthood that would set up an intermediary between God and man. So when we find out in Scripture, when God says something, it's prophetically meaning that he's going to move towards something else. So what did God prophesy on Mount Sinai that certainly didn't look like it at the time, but we stepped into that role for this day? Pick it up in Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, God's given him some instructions. This is Mount Sinai telling Moses, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure for me alone. Now that's important because we're going to see it happening more and more in the last days. God is speaking to the people of Israel. There were Hebrews at the time. They later became a nation of Israel. That you are going to be a special treasure. They were the only ones that God gave the covenant of circumcision to. So there's something about the nation of Israel that was setting up, it's all the pro, it's a prophetic time clock, it's a prophetic destination. If you want to see how things are going to end up, pay attention to Israel. It's the apple of God's eye. So God's telling him right here that you will be a special people for me if you obey my voice. Twice that Israel lost their nation and came back. Two times that they were overtaken, other nations came in and conquered them and rose again. No one has ever had that happen before. When Isaiah talks about, shall a nation rise up in a day? Well, yeah, it did right then. Six-day war, it happened. You shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So notice verse 6. You, are, you shall be a kingdom of priests, not a, a priesthood, but a kingdom of priests. The word kingdom there, especially in the Greek, is the basileia, means the dominion or the overseeing or government of a kingdom. So we find in Revelations 1 where it says, you will be kings and priests unto the Lord. 
It's a little bit confusing. I had spent a lot of time trying to rectify how there's two different verses because in Revelations 5 and verses 8 through 10, and he says, you are a kingdom of priests, which is using the exact same wording that God said on Mount Sinai. So how do we get the word kings and priests? If you've ever heard people will preach about you are either a king or a priest, you have to decide whether you're a king and a priest. And most of the time that's, when that's taught on, it's the idea kings are businessmen and priests are those who are more spiritual than the business guys. That they're there to offer the money that the business guys bring to them. That's usually the idea of that thinking. But when he says you're a kingdom of priests, it's talking about the one and the same things, but two different functions for that. Because Jesus, when he prayed in Matthew 6, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven, he wasn't making a distinction there. He said, let heaven come to earth so the authority that's in heaven is operating on earth. So when he says you'll be kings and priests, Kings would be the ones to enforce all of the, the dictates and all of the uh, governing of another king or kingdom. They were there to oversee the kingdom. So kings operate here on earth to enforce the victory that the word of God says to us. But priests are those who minister to the Lord or take offerings and gifts that minister before the Lord for other people, but are also ministering to the Lord. So it's not about either or, you are one and the same. That when you minister unto the Lord and you're worshiping the Lord, you're operating as a priest. When you start enforcing what the Word of God says by declaring, as we heard this morning, by your stripes we're healed, that is operating as a king. Amen. Your kingdom of God, Matthew 11, suffers violence, experience where biazo means to crowd out. So he's saying when you operate as a king, you're crowding out or pushing back the onslaught of the enemy because you're enforcing and you have the strength and have the wherewithal to set a boundary around your life. Now what I want us to look into this morning is that in the Old Testament they prayed uh, very defensively and most of our prayers that we prayed was, Lord, keep me from harm, protect me from the evil one, let not my enemies, you know, uh, overtake me. But I want us to see operating in a New Testament role that we're operating not from a defensive position, but from an offensive position. What I mean by offensive doesn't mean that you should go out and offend people. That's not what I'm talking about. Some people have that a natural gift, but I'm not talking about that kind of offensiveness. If you're that way, we can pray that off of you as well. <laughs> but being offensive, it means that I'm enforcing what the Lord has already, God has already said, declared from heaven, as Diane has mentioned, the tribunal, which means, you know, it's, it's the right to legislate or to declare something finished or done, completed. It's like a judge legislating. The judge doesn't make the laws. He just carries out, makes sure the laws are carried out. So we're not making the laws. We're not making the decrees. They've already been made in heaven. So we're enforcing it on earth. For a lot of us, we operate so defensively that we're praying, God, just keep me from falling, keep me from stumbling, keep me from going broke, keep me from somebody doing something else to me. And we never agree and look at the fact is that he wants us to be aggressive and to take back not only what the enemy stolen, but to take back ground for the kingdom of God. So we are a kingdom of priests and kings on the Lord. So when we're ministering unto the Lord, we're operating as a priest. And I just want to suggest to you as well 
that there's all kinds of offerings. Don't want to have time to get into it really well, uh, too deep. But one of the offerings that you can offer the Lord, probably hadn't thought of it too much, is your own pain. Instead of losing your sorrow and bemoaning over it, making it as an offering before the Lord. Think about it. When we suffer with him, we reign with him. To reign means I'm ruling with him. But sometimes when people are suffering, they complain about it and say, why me? Why now? How come this happens to me? But when you turn something from a pain to an offering or a loss, then you present it before the Lord and it becomes a, the altar of saying, God, I'll live out my life however it was. If I make my bed in hell, you're going to be there. You haven't changed your mind. You haven't altered how you feel because I don't feel well. You haven't changed and altered how you feel. So when I make it as an offering to the Lord, it totally takes it out of the enemy's camp. He totally takes it from rubbing it in our faces. Where's your God now? Well, I'll just make it as an offering for the Lord. Jesus became the offering that destroyed the works of the devil. Through all of his pain and all of his suffering, God took it as an offering before him and brought it into the heavenly and the holy place. Not out. Does God give us suffering? I don't believe. Does God make us suffer? I don't believe so. But we sure can use it as an offering. Just like, you know, the fact is God financially blesses us and we use that as an offering back to him. And so by whatever we, our lives are experiencing, we can offer it back unto the Lord in whatever way that comes out of that. Turn with me to Matthew, the 16th chapter. I want to camp here for just a little bit. If you'll put that... A graphic up or a video up. That's not a video. A picture up, I would appreciate it, y'all. Matthew 16, 18 is, most of us have heard it many, many times. You see that? You know what you're looking at? At Caesarea Philippi. All of those, you can't see it really well, but down at the bottom were pagan temples built in the sides of the rock and on other sides as well or temples built into the side of the rock. This is the most perverted place on the planet. It was there that they worshipped the god of Pan. Pan was a sex god who was excessive and, and with just perversion, completely perversion. This is where Jesus began to unveil himself to his disciples. And so in Matthew, the 16th chapter... When he says to Peter, who do men say that I am? In verse, verse uh, 18. And I say unto you that, that you are Peter. When, Jesus, when Peter said to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I will say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, this is the very place that Jesus was talking about. Notice that if you can see there to the left, that's the cave. That cave is called the gates of hell. It is thought to believe, and that scholars, it's not debated much, is that's where that the Elohim fallen demons entered earth at that point. It was, it was forbidden by all of the rabbis and priests of that day that they were not to go near there. It was twice a year they had big festivals there and perverted, uh, worshiping the pan god and doing all kinds of perverted things there. So Jesus takes his disciples on a field trip and he shows up at the very site that other rabbis and other teachers saying, we don't, we're not going to go there. And he shows up with there and he's, he, they must be thinking, you're crazy. Because it totally is against of all the other teaching that I'm hearing. So when they show up there, 
Jesus starts unveiling himself for the very first time who he really is. And he starts doing it by questions, who do men say that I am? Peter's the first one to say that Christ, the son of the living God. And out of that, uh, he begins to say, and you're Peter Petros. Now, sadly, the Catholic Church believes that, that they believe Peter was the rock he was talking about. No, they're setting it. They're at Caesarea Philippi. If you've ever been there, you've seen this. It is a strange-looking place, very dark place. So Jesus says to them, verse 19, uh, And I say to you that you are Peter, verse 18, and on this rock I will build my church. The word build means to confirm with signs and following. It has nothing to do with construction. I will confirm my church, which is building, by signs and wonders. The church is built not by just having a building and people coming and sitting in it. The church is built by signs and wonders, the ministry of the supernatural. So Jesus brings them there at this very place, the most ungodliest place on the planet, and he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. I will confirm signs and wonders at this very place. Now, most people think, well, this isn't very conducive. It's not a good location. There's so many reasons not to be here. So just think about what Jesus was saying. First of all, he was not afraid of demons. Demons screeched when he came around them. They, the, he knew that they were scared of him. So he said, I'm going to build my church right on the most ungodly place on the planet. So the church was never to be a place to find ourselves hovering in and trying to keep out the world. But the church was to be an offensive weapon, to be offensively engaged in concert with heaven to earth. But whereas we, we feel like I'm just living my life out for myself, what I can get out of it, make a good living, make a good life, get what I want out of it and all of that, that is such, it's not even the biblical term of what church is at all. We've reduced church down to a place that you attend on Sunday morning and you listen to someone speak, hear a few good songs, and we've done church. That has nothing to do with church. When he uses the word ecclesia, talking about I will govern from heaven to earth with signs and wonders following, so much so that the very place of hell and perversion all can't even withstand what's happening there. When he says gates of hell, plural there, he's using a word Hades or Hadassah, means anything that blocks the light or blocks revelation. So when Jesus takes his, his disciples and said, we're going to build, we're going to start right here. Because the, the gates of hell can't resist. No, gates were never meant to be an offensive reason there. Gates were always defensive. Gates were always there to keep people out. So when he sees the word gates, there, he says gates will not prevail. It was the idea that these gates are to keep things in, keep not, and keep people out. So when he uses the word gates, it was never as, a, as an offensive, but a defensive mechanism. So when he says that enter his gates with thanksgiving, that's an offensive, which means the gates are open, enter his courts with praise. So to be an offensive priest in a, in a New Testament role, it's the idea that we're not to pray prayers of just, you know, I'm going to hang out here and keep, keep the devil off my back, but to have such a sense of understanding who he is that you push back the gates of hell and you start taking captive what was in hell. Instead of just making judgments against people and saying, you know, how bad they are and, you know, boy, they've gone too far, go after them with the word of God and prayer. The Bible says if you see a brother that hasn't sinned a sin unto death, which would probably be blasphemy, 
then ask life for him. Don't just pile on everybody else's opinion. Ask life for him. That means we're operating as a New Testament king on the earth, bringing about the authority of king of the heaven to earth. And then we're offering whatever's delivered and brought back as the spoils as a sacrifice unto the Lord. So the, according to Romans, that present your bodies the living sacrifice unto the Lord. You are a priest to offer yourself as a sacrifice to the Lord, but you're also a, a king to operate the business and enforce the victory on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what's interesting with this understanding of the gates of hell, instead of trying to find a way to, I don't mess with the devil, he doesn't mess with me and stay away, there should be such a confidence and boldness of the Holy Spirit inside of us, so much so that we want to attack hell and so I want to take back everything that they've stolen. I want to take back the, the, everything that they've enslaved people because fear is an evident token to your enemy as a sign of perdition. So if you fear demons, then it's a sign that you're falling away from the Lord, not moving forward. It's in a defensive posture, not an offensive posture. Because if we understood the power of who Jesus really is to its full extent, and if we actually believe more than just theology, Christ in us, the expectation and power and, and might of glory then we'd recognize that when demons saw you, they, they would see the Christ in you. They would see the glory that cast them out of heaven, according to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. They were cast, Lucifer himself, cast out of heaven. He moved from, the, from a, a cherubim of glory down to the planet of darkness. So when he sees you, he sees something of glory and he sees and knows the power of what glory was there. So now you have an opportunity to, to function as a king on the earth that the glory of God is in you to enforce and to demand the enemy move out of the way and to take back fully the ground that you're on. Do you have any loved ones or friends, family, people that, that you know is not right with God? And so instead of just saying, well, it's their choice and, you know, let them be whatever they're going to be and, you know, and, and let them, if they want to go to hell, let them go to hell. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world, little g, God of this world, the Elohim, fallen demons, has blinded their eyes that they cannot see the hope or the expectation of who he is. So we, by uh, being offensive weaponry, we go after that and start pulling down those blinders and demanding that that enemy has to lose that because we're not coming up with our own edict on that. It's already said that for this very purpose, the Son of God was manifested, 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the devil. So we've been sent and under mandate to go after and destroy the works of the devil. So when Jesus says, I'll build my church right in front of the gates of hell, the most perverted places on the earth, and I give you the right and the authority to enforce on the heaven what I've already said in my kingdom. When Jesus paid the price and he muted the sin, it severed the headship of the demonic from our lives completely, and it established a, an ability to have the authority of Christ in us Instead of just from in heaven only, now he lives and dwells within us. So if we understood the power of the name of Jesus, then we'd realize that those demons understand it. We understand it theologically, but how many really knows what that name is? Just think for a moment. He died for my sins. Okay, cool. I get to go to heaven. Everything that Jesus did backs up his name for what he is. 
So everything that he destroyed means that he, we now have the right to have that same spirit of destruction inside of us to destroy the works of the devil. If we understood that in a full sense of way, then we wouldn't be backing away and just trying to find a way. I'm gonna, I don't bother them. I'm going to live my life out peaceably. I want to live it in such a way I don't want to make any waves. What a really sad part of life it is to live defensively. I've narrowed my sphere. I've narrowed my life to where I'm afraid of everything, afraid of everybody, and now I'm just to the point of have captured inside of my own life. Instead of stepping out of that and with confidence and boldness, I'm going to destroy everything that, that impedes what God's called me to do and into. So the role of the New Testament priests is not just simply, you know, to make prayers but it's to pray even offensively. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, it says that, he, said, he really declares this of himself, that we are royal priesthood, chosen generation. A, a generation has been chosen for such a time as this. Chosen generation, royal priesthood. Royal means we come from a lineage of bloodline. That's what royal is. We've heard all the stories of the royals in England. So he said, you come from a bloodline, you're a generation, you're not the bloodline of your earthly father. Because he said, you are not born again with corruptible seed, but with incorruptible seed, which is the word of God. So with that, if you've been born again, you know that you've been born again, you were born again because of the word of God and through the blood of Jesus, you now have something inside of you that's incorruptible. So when you face anything that's dark, demonic, Instead of backing down, knowing that you have incorruptible word inside of you and the devil is so nervous about you knowing the word, not just quoting it as, as, a, as a Google, but declaring it as it is done, completed as in me. It's, it's done. I believe it so heartily and the devil knows whether you know or not. Here's the rest of it. Your holy nation, his own special people. Does it sound very familiar? Just what he said there on Exodus 19, the Mount Sinai covenant. You are a special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There again, that's the priesthood declaring the praises, offering it before the Lord, called us out of darkness into light. So our priesthood functions and operates at the altar of the Lord, which is really out of our heart nowadays, ministering unto the Lord with thanksgiving and worship and we're honoring the Lord and with that he gives us back his royalty. He gives us back the royalty of the priest or the kingly anointing so we can function here on earth and carry out the, the, the word of God fully at that point. All right. There's, there's some, in Psalms 35, we want to look at some offensive prayers. Psalms 35. These are prayers that David prayed. Obviously, no Testament prayer. But notice, David was a king. He was also known as a priest. He said, plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. How many has ever prayed that? Amen. Lord, keep me from them. Lord, don't let them come at me. Lord, surround me, but don't let anything bad happen to me. What if the Lord wanted some enemy to push through so you'd have a cause? 
Is there not a cause? Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Contend with those who contend with me. I've prayed that before. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Now, when you put this on a national level, when God is, David is praying over the nation of Israel, and he's praying correctly because God's feeling about Israel is important. We're seeing that more and more right now than ever before. Things are lining up in the Middle East like never before. Things are happening, Turkey, Syria, with Russia. He's got a hook in the jaw, you know, of, of Rusha is what it says in the, in the Old Testament. And he's pulling them down into that valley. It's because God's going to have this little tiny country that's about the size of New Jersey. And he's having his way because it is the apple of his eye. So when you know that that's God's feeling about something, then you pray his heart for them, which is plead my case, O God. Lord, I already know how you feel about Israel. I know how you feel about my family. So therefore, I'm pleading and declaring to, over my family my cause and case that it is your will that you deliver us from evil. It's not God's will that any should perish, but all shall come to the knowledge of the Son of God. So if that's true, we know that we're praying according to the will of God. As operating as a king, I cannot operate outside of the will of God. I'm simply enforcing what he's already said. So with that in mind, what is it? How would you pray to change things around? And it can't be prayers of I want to get what I want when I want it. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how do we advance the cause of the kingdom of God. So when we stand before Lord at, before God at the Bema seat, you'll give an account for what you've done basically with all your time because time was something God gave us. What you did with, with honoring with your substance, your finances, because that was something he trusted you in, as a steward. And thirdly, what did you, you do with, uh, with Jesus? How did you honor him? Did you worship him? How was faithful to him? Do you, in the terms of time-wise, was I give my time, all my energy up to see what I could get out of that? That's all going to pass away. So when we talk about enforcing on earth, we're looking at something that has eternal value that's going to be brought on before us in a long-term way. So when you stand before God, it's not going to really care about how many sermons I preached, how many miles I traveled. None of that's really going to matter. It's what did you do with what I gave you to do, which I called you to take my word, enforce it on earth, and be a priest that offers sacrifices, sacrifices and, and honoring the Lord. Every time something negatively or criticism or crisis comes in our life, that is, an, that is a sacrifice waiting to be offered. But if I see this as, oh, woe is me, here we go again, then I've lost the opportunity for the sacrifice. That's that critical crisis issue. My first response is, no, I don't like this. Very natural. But if I recognized as a priest, I could turn this thing from mourning into dancing. I could turn this thing from beauty, from ashes to beauty, 
and turn it around by offering it as a sacrifice unto the Lord instead of complaining and saying how bad it is or even saying, why me? Nothing ever good happens to me. But as a priest, it means I have to be faithful to take and recognize when something is in the way, do I offer it before the Lord? Because the priests in the Old Testament, they would bring the offerings to the priest. He would inspect them to, say, to see if they were appropriate to be offered. Same thing as a New Testament priest. I want to see everything that's brought into my life, brings into your life, as a priest, is it appropriate to offer to the Lord? I don't think it's appropriate to say, put on there and say, God, you haven't done a very good job at taking care of me. Somebody else held me back. Something happened. I, I would have been farther along, but this happened. And I didn't get what I wanted. I got really disappointed, so I'm angry at you, God. I don't think that's going to fly. But if you take something, say, Lord, I'm willing to let go of and see this as a loss, as a sacrifice unto you. If you've lost a loved one, there's, there's a, surely there's a grieving part, but it says, I offer that, Lord, that experience, not them. I'm offering my heart before you as a sacrifice. Find it all the way through Scripture about offering a sacrifice of joy. So it really starts out by saying, if I'm truly a, a New Testament priest, then I have an altar here, and what am I offering to the Lord with the opportunities I can offer Him? Few that ever lost a a pregnancy, miscarriage. I don't think there's anything. We had one in our, my, my daughter. Any more that's hurtful. Could you think about what could have been? What might have been the future? And you could get stuck there for a long, long time. But you just make it as offering before the Lord. God, I thank you. You're the author and the finisher of my faith. The sacrifices of are a broken heart and a contrite spirit, you will in no wise cast out. So those sacrifices, God says, I will honor and I will put a stamp of approval on it. So when you stand before God, say, here are the sacrifices that I've brought before you, O Lord. Yeah. We stand before the Lord, all of those sacrifices that we made before the Lord, and I'm not talking about, you know, a sacrifice, you know, going to a Cowboys football game day to be in church. I don't know that that's, that really goes in the slaughter not. But what there is a sacrifice that it has a value and there's a sacrifice that had a loss to it. The woman who's putting the little copper coins in the back, Jesus is giving them an understanding of the value of it. And he says to them, that woman back there has given more money than all of you because she gave out of her need, out of something that was a really a sacrifice to her. And the rest of you just gave when it was easy to do that. So the sacrifices that really have a powerful punch, if you will, are the sacrifices that have a cost involved. When there's, there's something at that point that you just say, I don't understand why this happened. I don't understand how it happened. But when you start blaming people for it, you've lost your position of sacrifice. I could have been great. I could have been successful. Somebody did something. Somebody got in the way of it. Somebody held me back. Let me tell you, if you're called to God to do something, nobody can hold you back. That means that they are more powerful than God. You press through, you break through, you honor the Lord with wherever you are at that time, and you 
you know, we make our plans, but ultimately it's God who guides the, the direction steps we make. It's about trusting the Lord. Okay. So when we're, we're operating as a New Testament king on the earth, there are verses of Scripture that God will give you that you should have a journal of these that's offensive weapon against the gates of hell. And against the gates of hell doesn't mean hell's trying to break into your house. It means you're trying to break in hell. Whatever the resistance is, whatever that's holding you back, whether that's healing, whether that's financial, whether that's family members, whatever the breakthrough is, we need a huge breakthrough for our nation. We're fighting for the, for the, na- the soul of our nation. And right now, whatever the America does towards Israel and how we respond to Israel, we pay the price for it one way or the other. As we, so goes Israel, so goes the rest of the world. God uses this tiny little nation to make that up. So when you come right down to it, it's not about making idle prayers and just saying whatever your opinion is. It's about coming down to this one point of saying, I'm standing on what the Word of God says. I'm enforcing on earth because God, you said, and this is your Word. Then your faith is not what you just said as we, as we believe, so thus we speak. But the next part of that is we live our life out of that. Faith is not what we believe in. Faith is what we do. So out of that is, is the next step is where do we move from here? Begin to live it out fully so that the words and declarations of my heart, with the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. It's living it out in a full demonstrative way. That means you're enforcing it, you're pushing back the gates of hell and receiving what you need to do. The power of life and death is definitely in the tongue. The gates of hell is the gates of death. The power in life and death is in the tongue then that means if, our, if, I'm my, if I'm agreeing and saying things that are very against the body of Christ, then the fact is that I've just aligned myself with death. Heard someone say just recently, that church is ghetto. You've just aligned yourself with the gates of hell. Because Jesus died for the church and you just mocked what Jesus said about his church. You are in opposition to him. Whatever we, as we say of him, as you've done it to these, done it the least of them, you've done it to him. We don't realize that our words have reasonings, our words have might and power, and we're saying and doing things that opens up the gates of hell towards us, and he's resisting us. We'll never get past that moment. Stand with me, would please. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent to minister in behalf of the heirs of salvation? The thing that moves angels are not us telling them. So my understanding is I have no authority to cause and make an angel do anything. In fact, the Bible says we're made lower than angels. But I do know one that can, 
the captain of the host of the armies of the angels. I know the one that commands the angels and his name is the word of God. That angels move at the speed of light and at the speed of revelation. They move at the speed of his word and when someone obeys the voice of God, then he has the angels that will minister in behalf of the heirs of salvation. If you find resistance in your life, you need to look at it and say, have I done anything that have put myself in opposition to the Lord? Back to Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom of God. Keys are meaning simply is the right to go anywhere you want to. Open doors, shut doors, whatever it is. When you have keys, that means you have places of authority. I have, on my phone, I can open any door. I have keys to open any door in this building, open every door outside, indoor, out that. Because I have authority. Some of you have keys that will open part doors, but not all doors. To the level that you're willing to obey the voice of God and become a living sacrifice unto Him and be a priest unto the Lord is to the level that you have keys or how many keys you have. So when he said, you'll bind on earth what has already been bound in heaven. Already, it's already been done in heaven. I give you the authority to do something on earth that's already been accomplished in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. There are some things that just doesn't only need binding, but we need loosing. There's things that we need to loose in our own life, and we can loose in heaven that's God's provision God's might and God's power that's being held up, we have to loose it. I mean, let it be released into earth as it is in heaven. But it's very possible for us to be, for us to be bound on earth and bound in heaven, that heaven has no response of who we are. We can know it theologically and grow up in church all of our life, become so hardened to the gospel, hardened to the word that it means nothing to us. I know the stories, but the reality of it is I can be bound in heaven just like I'm bound in earth. And there's two or three things that would bind us here. If I don't have forgiveness here, I certainly won't have forgiveness there. If I mock the church of Jesus here, and the one he died for there, then I'm, I'm resisted. Jesus coming back for a bride. He's very jealous for her. Very much jealous for her. Don't take it lightly. So Father, I pray this morning that you would bring revelation to us. That we would operate with power and authority of a king, but never miss the sensitivity of what we offer to you. That we just don't operate 
horizontally as a king to one another and the issues going on on this earth and forget that we minister unto you as the lover of our soul. Let me just say that, especially intercessors, you can get so strong about interceding for the nation and forget about loving the Lord with all of your heart, mind, and strength. Don't let one overtake the other. One is a calling, the other is a responsibility. The responsibility is to love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, mind, and strength. You can be strong in a gifting. In fact, you can have a gifting and no anointing. Because we learn how to do giftings. We learn how to do ministry. But the anointing is on the inside of us. It's the, that prompting, that conviction, the fear of God on the inside of us that causes us to be so strongly moved, so strongly, so in-depth moved inside of us that I don't want to offend you, God, in any way. So, Father, I pray over every person that, would be, that we would become a priest unto our God, first and foremost. We'd offer you the gifts of sacrifice, of praise. Hebrews 13 says, the fruit of our lips, that through Jesus we offer the fruit of our lips. And out of that time being with the Lord, I have something on earth to declare in this earth. Let it be done. Let it be done. Let it be accomplished. Help us not to be so earthly minded, God, that we forget about that there's a kingdom that has no end and a king of all kings that we worship you, love you, and bless your name. One ministry team just come right now. <clears throat> Appreciate a word that Mary, Mary Brown came over and she said, I just saw chains being broken this morning. She didn't know what I was going to preach on. Just saw that shackles coming off of people. I tell you, one of the chains that we're not even aware of sometimes there, I just don't get it. I just don't get it means your, your mind is locked up. just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it doesn't. It won't. Until your heart begins to receive all that the Lord has, your mind won't get it. When your mind says it, have to, it has to make sense for me to, to release my heart to the Lord, which means totally surrendering spirit, soul, and body, then we won't get it. So I'll make that offer to you. If you're here this morning, you've never allowed Jesus to become the Lord of your life, there's people here be able to pray for you. I never want to take it for granted that everybody here is a born-again believer. You might be a believer and never been born again. So he wants to make this offer to you. Not only is the building of God, but we are the house of God, offering gifts and sacrifice to the Lord. Just allow the Holy Spirit to take everything that's been a burden to you and now becomes an offering to him, casting your care upon him for he cares for you. Father, we just release this morning into your hands. We thank you for the glory and the honor and the praise. And we bless you and call upon your name, O oh God, to fulfill your purposes in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Go ahead and step out. And let 
people's here to minister to you. Today, there's going to be a releasing of heavy stuff, heavy stuff being broken right now. Trusting Him for everything. Believing God to solve the issues. <clears throat> there's answers and solutions. You don't have to figure this out on your own. God is willing to, to, to deliver and set free from every, every area of life. If you need to go, the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Have a great week. And the ladies will be here tomorrow night. Bye-bye.